This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We've got a lot coming today. In segment two, we're going to talk with Ron Lamberti. He's the chief marketing officer at the American Coalition for Ethanol. They have recently developed a new calculator to figure out the carbon intensity of the corn your operation is generating to supply ethanol. We'll talk through that mathematics with us here in segment two. And in segment three, Daryl Peel, professor of ag econ at Oklahoma State University, will be with us. We've heard quite a bit recently about about the elevated cow slaughter that has been happening across this country. Professor Peel, of course, down in Oklahoma, right there in the heart of that drought territory. We're going to get an update on what's happening in the coal cow market and what to expect here more broadly with consumer tastes as we get into the summer. And in segment four, we're going to talk with Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Before we do all of that, though, we are going to go down to Oklahoma, in fact, for our first segment and check in with Mike Schulte, the executive director of the Oklahoma Wheat Commission. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Good to be with you. Let's talk about the Oklahoma wheat harvest, Mike. But before we get to that, this growing season was a struggle for folks down in Oklahoma. Bring us up to speed. Who got hit the hardest throughout the growing season with the drought trouble? We just really have had uh, issues all across the western region of the state, which is the major area for wheat production. Uh, We have had some pockets where we are getting decent harvest in. And then in north-central Oklahoma along the I-40 corridor, uh, I mean, along the I-35 corridor, things are looking um, a little better in that region. They are getting into higher yields, but uh, overall, statewide, it's just really, it's just really kind of a, uh, been a challenging year. Uh, we didn't get the rains at the right time in March and April when we needed them, and now that we're in the harvest field, uh, we're seeing we're seeing the results of not having had that moisture. And then put on top of that, once we got in the harvest field, uh, then all of a sudden we uh, started getting rains, and so it's been. It's been a real challenge, especially for producers in parts of uh, central and southern Oklahoma and south central Oklahoma, uh, because they've just been really hit really hard the past week with with rains and high winds and hail damage, which also have not done the crop any good. No, not at all. It has been one thing after another for that wheat crop in the Southern Plains. Mike, Oklahoma Wheat Commission, of course, you you compiled the, the data and the statistics on harvest. I know you put that report together yesterday. How far along is harvest across Oklahoma? Uh, right now, we're calling it 45% complete. Uh, we've made great strides in far southwestern regions. Uh, I'd say in parts down there, they're 95% done. In other parts, they're uh, probably uh, they have probably about uh, 85% of it out. As we've gotten in the central parts of the state, uh, we have made great progress in those regions. Uh, we have uh, have had uh, probably about 60 to 65 percent, and we are just getting started in the north central regions of the state uh, today or the last couple of days. And so in some of those regions, probably 20 percent cut out. All right, Mike, as you look farther west, get into that panhandle region. Is much of that wheat going to see a combine? Uh, a lot of that wheat uh, has done a little bit better on some of the dry land than that was ever expected. Uh, but, um, you know, we're still looking at probably very minimal yields, uh, maybe 15 to mid-20s on the dry land, uh, maybe some uh, 40 to, to as high as 70 on some of the irrigated, but also the irrigated wheat out in that region just not uh, does not look favorable for, for this year. Uh, it just really struggled. Uh, given the conditions that it had had. And so, you know, USDA did come out with a report statewide this week at uh, 64.8 million bushels. So they have upped it a little. I think they did that because we have seen some higher yields in northern Oklahoma coming in. But when you really look at it, um, uh, you know, uh, from some of the regions that we've lost in, in southern Oklahoma due to crop and, and uh, I mean, due to hail and wind and then uh, also in northwest Oklahoma where it's been extremely dry, uh, parts of Garfield and and Alfalfa County uh, are the two largest wheat producing counties uh, in the in the state, and uh, you know we've had a lot of the crop disaster out in that region as far as uh, due to the drought, and so you know that's that's never going to be harvested, and so it's going to have a significant impact on the on the on the overall statewide numbers yet, I believe. 
Mike, you mentioned hail there, and that's a risk we've seen across the, the well, really the growing country parts of this country here over the past several months. Who was hit with hail down in Oklahoma? Uh, it, it came in uh, through the central corridors, kind of along, along the I-40 corridor down from Clinton to Weatherford, and then it actually moved south. Uh, into uh, parts of Caddo, Canadian, and uh, Grady County. So uh, three large wheat producing counties in that region, too. Oh, boy, it is tough. Wes, you talk to producers, Mike, as they're slugging through this harvest. How are attitudes holding up? Are the prices out there in the market keeping folks incentivized enough to, to keep running? Uh, I think that the prices are holding up. Uh, I think in, in some instances, things are better than what we had expected. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's there's certainly those areas that have been hit extremely hard where there's going to be not make, much taken in, uh, maybe even 10 to 20 percent of what we normally would in a normal year. And so, uh, you know, we do have the prices, but those prices, unfortunately, don't do us any good when we don't have anything to take to market. So it, it certainly is, is extremely challenging. And then you look at the input cost of what it's taking to make everything work. Uh, our producers are, are, are really struggling right now. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Mike, have you heard any guys looking to get out of the wheat business? Are they looking at those acres and other crop potentials here in this next year? Uh, I think always, you know, they're always looking for other opportunities. I, I suspect maybe we're going to actually see some maybe opportunities uh, for actually maybe even some grazing graze, more management plans maybe coming this fall. But the challenge is right now, even though we've received some moisture over the last couple of weeks, uh, you've seen now we're going back into summer, have 108 degree temperatures already in the middle of June. I think it's going to make it really a struggle for these guys who are putting the summer crops out uh, because it doesn't look like uh, the moisture is predicted uh, for those in the coming months as well. Mike, I understand this week you're out there getting a little therapy up in the tractor cab. What are harvest results looking like where you're at? Uh, I would say that we're pretty well on with kind of the statewide average in the mid-20s. Uh, uh, USDA is calling the, the average of the crop 27 bushels per acre this year. And so that's, that's, that's probably where we're, where we're going to be. And where would that be, if, you know, in a non-drought year? What would you like to see for a statewide average? Well, last year we were at 39 bushels for the average. So, you know, we have inched that up. Um, uh, certainly we like those years much better, uh, but, uh, you know, I would say, you know, 35 to 39 is, is kind of generally where we have been over the last five to six years. All right. Well, more of this harvest data will be coming in as those combines continue to roll. And Mike, we'll continue to watch for Oklahoma Wheat Commission updates for our listeners outside of Oklahoma. Where can they go to keep up to date with what's happening in your state with the wheat crop? Uh, you can just go to okweek.org, and we publish harvest reports on Monday and Wednesday, and then we do also updates with Plain Grains uh, Incorporated that follow the crop from the southern plains of Texas on up into the Dakotas and Montana. Folks, follow along. That wheat harvest is underway. Our thanks to Mike Schulte, the Executive Director of the Oklahoma Wheat Commission. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stick around. Ron Lamberti from the American Coalition for Ethanol will join us next to talk about figuring up the carbon intensity of the corn on your operation. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Soil. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <clears throat> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station.
Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for making AOA a part of your day. If you've been listening to conversations in the agricultural space over the past several years, there's a two-word phrase that has worked itself into our conversations increasingly, and it's grown even more over the past year, and that phrase is carbon intensity. This is a crucial measurement in determining the impact of carbon in the things we produce. And of course, in agriculture, it's our grains and our ethanol. Well, our friends over at the American Coalition for Ethanol recently introduced a carbon intensity calculator to help folks figure up the CI of their operations. Joining me today to talk about it is Ron Lamberti, the chief marketing officer there at ACE. And Ron, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. You've been glad to do it. We're pretty excited about it. Well, let's start with the, the question of carbon intensity. We hear this phrase a lot, Ron. What is it? What are we measuring with carbon intensity? Well, it's, you know, the, the, the issue of what we do with the environment is centered around how much carbon goes into the atmosphere. And so when you make a product, even if it's carbon, you know, even if it's cleaner carbon, um, you, you need to know how much is being put out through the whole process. So the fact that for example, an electric car, when you see the commercials, they say, no, you know, there's there's no carbon emissions from the tailpipe, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and yet, when you make electricity, you have carbon, you know, being put into the atmosphere. So the carbon intensity um, level of something is basically all of that carbon connected. Um, and then you, you have a number at the end that says, here's how much carbon this particular process puts out. And with ethanol or with any kind of farming, it's how much carbon are you using in fertilizer, in, in the actual farming itself, in the delivery of products, in the everything else? So it gets very complicated. And the beauty of this calculator we've got is that it allows you to just put numbers in and it simplifies it for you at the end so you know what your carbon intensity actually is and you can see what all goes into it. Ron, one of the challenges that I've heard discussed with carbon intensity is that a lot of it is calculated using models and not all of these models are in agreement with one another. How did you guys resolve that as you were building your calculator? Well, our calculator, and I, and I guess I, I got to, you know, give credit where credit's due. Ron Alverson, who's a farmer and, and who has been doing things like strip tilling and, and a lot of these, these uh, practices that people talk about, 
been doing them since the 80s. Um, he's also kind of a, I mean, he's a, uh, he, he, he built a spreadsheet with all of those models you're talking about to compare one to the other. And when we saw that, we said, wow, we've got to show this to people. And we started showing it to people and, and it was, you know, it was a little bit more complicated. So we worked with Ron probably over the last more than a year trying to simplify this thing and make it so that people could see it. Because my own experience with it was, although I know what carbon intensity is, in general, I didn't know where all the numbers came from. And so this calculator shows the California model with, that they use for their low carbon fuel standard. It shows what the, what the numbers are there. It shows the GREET model, which is a USDA model. And then it shows those values in the final model saying, here's what they, you know, here's what they actually are. Here's what those numbers are based on, you know, actual farms and their actual practice based on your geography, based on what you, you know, how you farm. Um, and then the ethanol plant numbers are in there too. But basically then all of those models are compared so you can see where they go. And then the other column that's great about it is at the end it shows what your CI score is and then how much that's worth per acre or per gallon. So, um, you know, it, it's a, it, in my own experience, it helped me understand the process better. I mean, I don't farm. I, I work with the ethanol people mostly. But now I know what those numbers mean, and you can see what you can do that doesn't seem like it'd be that difficult, but it would have a lot of points, or you could see things that maybe wouldn't make as much difference and make the decision to maybe investigate how you could improve that on your farm or whether or not maybe in your particular case that's not worth the, you know, worth the, the, the carbon investment, I guess. Yeah, that's what is so neat about the model is I'm, I'm running through it right now. We've got several broad categories and each one can impact that total output. And so Ron, talk me through if, if I'm a producer and I'm curious about this issue, I want to know what the impact of, of my carbon is for my operation as my, my products go on into the supply chain. What all is required for me to know to fill out the calculator? Um, you know, number, number one, you just got to put your email address and you go to ethanol.org and there's a tab that has carbon calculator on it. Um, and then you go into there, you got to put your email address. We don't, we're not putting down a mailing list or anything. We just want to know who's kind of using it. And then it has all these categories like, you know, tillage, do you strip till, no till, do you, you know, what kind of fertilizer are you using? Um, you know, what kind of fuel are you using? And that's the, that's the kind of the fun thing too. Do you use biodiesel in your tank, in your, in your tractors? Are you using gasoline or are you using ethanol? You know, it, it, that kind of stuff is factored in there too. How much do you use? But all of your inputs, I mean, any farmer, all of the inputs that you have to farming, um, there's, there's a space for just about any of them. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think it, it doesn't, it doesn't ask you what brand of feed you're using or anything, but, but I mean, it's, you know, the fertilizer, the, the, uh, um, uh, you know, what kind of tillage you have. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, well, you know, how far, how far is it to, to wherever you're delivering the corn? Um, you know, that's all of those different factors that you probably, most farmers probably know without much, without much research. Absolutely. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that you've just gone through, growers. You're getting that crop in the ground now while it's fresh in your mind. You can plug it into the calculator. Ron, you mentioned you work primarily on the ethanol side. So I'm curious about the next step in this carbon intensity calculator. Are we seeing ethanol plants consider using this sort of data to better market their ethanol in places like California? Well, like in California, there's a process to go through where you where you uh, get a pathway, they call it, where you detail to the California Air Resources Board, here's what we're doing in our plant, here's the corn we buy. Um, and you try to, you have to have documentation for all of that. So we've got in one case right now, and we applied for more grants, but for, from USDA, we have a project where we're essentially taking all of that data for a plant, um, Dakota Ethanol right now in, in uh, Madison, South Dakota, and we're working with I think we had 150 some farmers that signed up to have us, you know, talk to them about tracking this stuff for them. But then when you have that data, you can go to California and, and a lot of these, you know, a lot of the CA and some of the other folks have been kind of resistant to, um, you know, us talking about farm input. There's a thing in there for carbon capture and sequestration. But 
once we have data on that, we can go back to those places and then say, you know, our carbon intensity for this fuel should be X. You know, let's say it's 10. Gasoline is like 93. Let's say it's 10. Well, somebody will pay for the difference between 93 and 10 because they get carbon credits and can sell them. And what happens then is if they'll pay more for the ethanol, we can pay more for the corn. And then everybody shares in this, in this uh, you know, carbon market that's out there. And, and one of the main goals of this thing, because it was created originally by a farmer, was knowing how much your product is worth as far as reducing carbon compared to just corn. And that sort of sometimes is an unfortunate thing, and that's the vision that like EPA has and some environmentalists have of farming is this sort of cartoonish, here's what a farmer is and here's what he does. And, you know, by, by detailing it and going to them and saying, no, no, this is different because they do this and this and here's the thing they do. And, this, you know, I always have this image of an environmentalist thinking that farmers just take a fire hose and spread fertilizer on everything the way they talk about it sometimes. But we can go with this data to these boards and as more you know, low carbon fuel standards pop up around the country, those are going to be opportunities to make more money if you can document how clean your fuel is. And all the way out to the, the station owners who, if they can buy a low carbon fuel, can maybe, you know, trade those credits and pass on some savings like we're seeing in California where, uh, you know, E85 is being sold for 2 and $3 less than gas right now and people can throw the E85 out there grown it's tripled in the last four or five years so they're yeah. one company selling about as much as a plant makes in a year so it is incredible, folks. This stuff is not going away. The ability to sell corn and data in the future is going to be huge. Ron, for growers who want to learn more about this to experiment, plug in their numbers and test it, where can they go to see the calculator? Uh, go to ethanol.org and there's a carbon tab there. Click on that or uh, ethanol.org. I think it's slash calculator ci something like that but go to the tab it's easier <laughs> you bet it's right there on the main page folks ethanol.org our thanks to ron lamberti the chief marketing officer there at ace ron thanks for joining us today thanks for having me and folks stick around we're going back to oklahoma for segment three talking with dr daryl peel professor of ag econ at oklahoma state university stick around for more aoa Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40-plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American, as well as folks around the world. Ag Census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash ag census. Thank you. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we look at the market trade here so far on this Tuesday, the soy complex is the upside leader with good strength in beans with meal following behind as well. While wheat futures are under pressure, some double-digit losses there. Corn kind of caught in the middle right around the unchanged mark to slightly lower. Mixed to higher action being seen in cattle at hong futures here as we work through our morning hours as well. Again, 
uh, all eyes on the stock market equities. A lot of pressure seen there again yesterday with the inflation data we got late last week. Dow Jones up 135 with S&P futures currently up 23, NASDAQ up 81. The producer price index out today rose 0.8% month on month in May, matching analyst expectations, but up from 0.4% the previous month. The PPI rose 10.8% year on year in May, down from analyst expectations of 11%. But part of that was due to a large upward revision of the April number to 11.5%, up from 11% originally. Now in the grains, it's heating up and drying out across the the Midwest this week. A surge of heat expected to bring record readings this week before moderating over the weekend, followed by another surge in heat next week. For most, the heat units will be positive for the crops, especially where they have good soil moisture until that moisture runs out. The primary question is, will the current pattern hold into and through next month? Forecast models disagree on that currently, but for now, the pattern is hot and dry. That is traders nervous in a year when the margin for error is essentially non-existent. Looking at a few numbers, currently September corn down two, 728 and three quarters. August beans up 10 and a half, 1638 and a quarter. Chicago wheat September down 21, 1065. September KC wheat down 18 to three quarters, 1150. July spring wheat eight lower, 1213 to three quarters. Cattle and hogs mixed to higher. Crude oil up 241 a barrel, 123.34. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This cattle market has been one to watch for the past two years. We've seen producers struggling to make ends meet. We've seen inflation, moving consumer buying behavior. And of course, we saw COVID really throw a wrench into the whole thing. Now, of course, we're looking at the future for the cattle market. And joining us today to break it down is Dr. Daryl Peel, professor of ag economics at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Peel, thanks for joining us today. You bet. Good morning, Mike. How are you this morning? I am fantastic, sir. Thanks for asking. I want to ask you first about pasture conditions down there in Oklahoma. We know you had a very, very tough winter, but some rains have been coming. How do things look around your state? You know, in Oklahoma, we've seen uh, a, quite a bit of rain and a remarkable improvement in our pasture conditions in the last month or so. Uh, even, you know, the far west was always the driest part, and it's still dry. Uh, but we've, we've uh, you know, we've backed those drought monitor categories up by at least one category, two in many cases for the time being. So uh, we're in substantially better shape at this point compared to about a month ago. Well, that is good to hear for a lot of those folks down there, Daryl. And I want to talk to you about the impacts of that extended dry period there across the Southern Plains, chief amongst them for the cattle industry. This cow slaughter, we have seen extensive collect through herds across the country. Are we getting close to wrapping that up now that we're seeing some rain there in the Southern Plains? Well, you know, we might be here uh, in, in this particular region, um, but if you look broad, you know, more broadly across uh, not only the rest of the, the southern plains, uh, I don't think Texas has seen the amount of improvement that we have in Oklahoma, certainly the, the uh, southwest, the Four Corners region, and, and even up through, uh, you know, the parts of the northern plains and, and much of the rest of the west is still very dry. So cow slaughter has been, beef cow slaughter has been running 15% <clears throat> above year-go levels so far this year through through the end of May. 
Uh, and that was on top of a 9% annual increase in beef cow slaughter last year. So uh, we are uh, pulling down this cow herd pretty, uh, pretty dramatically here. And it doesn't really look to me like that's going to let up. I think, uh, you know, certainly hasn't in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think uh, producers that managed to hang on to, to this point, hoping for better spring conditions and growing conditions this year, uh, haven't really seen those in many places. And so we probably have some additional culling yet to go. Dr. Peel, one of the things that has surprised me in this market here, particularly over the past month or six weeks, I would say, is the strength of prices for cull cattle. I was at a, watching a sale up at Northeast Iowa the other day, and now these were dairy dairy culls that were moving to the market, but they were bringing 85 to 91 bucks a hundredweight. That seems really strong, given the amount of cattle we've supposedly got on feed, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. The cull cow market has, from a price standpoint, stayed remarkably strong this year. It actually stayed pretty strong last year, again, with that increase in cow culling. And so you have to look to the demand side to, to sort of get an answer to that. We've got uh, and have had since uh, about this time last year or, or a little bit more than a year ago, we saw a dramatic increase in 90% uh, lean trimming beef, the cull cow beef, if you will, obviously driven by the ground beef market. And that has continued uh, through, you know, all through the second half of last year and so far this year, we have not seen that back away. So that ground beef market has been very strong and that continues to support these cull cow prices despite the fact that uh, cow slaughter is up. Now, you know, dairy cow slaughter is down on a year-over-year -year basis. Beef cow slaughter is up. So the, there is a net increase in cow slaughter, but it's not the 15% that's on the beef-only cows. It's about 6 or 7% uh, when you net in the, uh, the dairy cow slaughter decrease. Okay, that's a crucial piece of information. Thank you for that, Dr. Peel. And I want to ask you, you mentioned, on, mentioned that move towards ground beef. As prices at the meat case have stayed elevated, do you think consumers are going to continue to be seeking out that ground beef all summer? Oh, I think they will. You know, ground beef, of course, uh, is is popular this time of year, just from a seasonal grilling demand standpoint. Again, it was it was popular all winter. I think we've seen more and more over the last year, folks really getting out and about more, and and there was some pent up demand, I think, which is uh, to some extent still in place. And, and then the other thing we've been watching for, and frankly, I haven't seen it too much yet, at least uh, to really be able to conf confirm it. But with with all beef prices high, and and obviously the middle meats. Uh, uh, very, very, uh, very, very pricey right now. We look for uh, up, you know situations where consumers appear to be trading down in demand, if you will. They still eat beef, but they maybe aren't buying as much of the more expensive middle meats. They trade down, and ground beef is one of the places they would turn to. So the ground beef demand is strong. I don't think it's principally strong because of that trading down at this point. But we may see more and more of that as we go forward, uh, you know, from this point. Okay, watch that consumer buying behavior. That's always key. Dr. Peel, we're halfway through the year. We saw a 2% drop in the total beef cattle inventory here from January. I've got to imagine that herd has continued to shrink. Is that your read? You know, as I look at the numbers for the cow slaughter so far this year on the beef cow side, um, you know, even if we held slaughter equal to a year ago for the remainder of the year, we'd have about a 6% increase on an annual basis. Again, that's on top of a 9% increase year over year a year ago. Uh, so, you know, under the very best of circumstances, and that is assuming that we quit, uh, you know, stop this year over year increase from this point forward, we would still see, uh, you know, something approaching a 3 percent decrease in the beef cow herd this year and, and there's a real risk because I don't think we will stop that year over year cow uh, cow slaughter increase uh, that we're going to be looking at a three to four percent decrease in the beef cow herd uh, in 2022 and that would be uh, I think in any event we will probably have a net culling rate when you look at cow slaughter as a percent of the January 1 herd that will be a new record level it could range anywhere from 12 and a half percent to 13 and half percent on net culling it normally runs just a little less than 10 percent on a long-term average oh wow so that would be a big move up in total net coals for the the dairy se or the, the beef sector that's right you, you know we could be looking at uh, over a million head or at least a million head decrease year over year in the beef cow herd this year and that would be the, the biggest single year decrease since the mid-1980s 
Daryl, is that going to be enough? We've talked a lot on this program about the lack of leverage in the cattle feeders' hands, given the abundant supplies we've had in the beef industry for the past two or three years and the challenges we've seen with processing. If we see a herd shrink that much year over year, is this the thing that finally puts the leverage back in the cattle feeders' hands for 2023? Certainly, as we go forward, time is going to, you know, tighten up those supplies. We haven't yet, as you said, we haven't really seen the, the smaller calf crops of the last couple of years show up uh, uh, on the other end of the feedlots coming out as, as smaller feedlot production at this point. But it's coming. It will happen. I think uh, towards the end of this year, we'll start to see it. I think we'll see it more aggressively in 2023. And at some point in time, we can't say when right now because we don't know what the drought's going to do. At some point in time, this industry is going to try to rebuild, and that's when we really squeeze supplies because on top of smaller numbers that we work our way to by that point then we're going to try to save a bunch of heifers for rebuilding and that's what really puts the and we'll also cut back cow culling and those two things combined will be what really puts the crimp in 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 beef production that could happen in 2020 i don't think it happens in 2023 it more likely happens in 2024 uh when we really see that uh, tightening but it but but supplies will tighten uh, really from this point forward and certainly in 2023 compared to this year Daryl, that's on the supply side. On the other branch of the supply side, of course, are imports. Do you see imports, beef imports coming into this country in a large way, particularly to satisfy that 90% lean market? Well, that's always a part of that market. We don't produce enough lean beef in this country for the level of ground beef production that we have, so we always import a significant quantity of that lean beef, uh, and and that will certainly continue as we tighten up uh, cow slaughter. Now, in the short run, again, cow slaughter's up, right? So we're actually producing more of that meat, uh, but at some point in time, it'll go the other way, and we'll we'll reduce that cow slaughter uh, when we try to stop liquidating the herd initially, and then eventually to try to rebuild it. So at some point in time there'll be an even bigger uh, supply decrease on that lean trimming side. And that probably will, uh, you know, certainly if prices respond to that as we would expect, then that may lead to uh, some additional increase in imports at some point in time. All right, Daryl, I've heard from some sale barns that bred heifers and pears are bringing the money in 2022. Is that something you keep track of? Is that is that a nationwide increase or have I just heard about a few uh, weird sales where they popped extra high? <laughs> well, we don't have really good, consistent data to, to look at, to track that. Um, I sort of hear anecdotally like you do in certain spots. I think that may be happening in some regions that don't have the drought. And, and you know, there are some folks uh, out there certainly who see what's happening and, and talk about the kind of numbers I've just talked about in terms of, of the herd liquidation. And they're sort of trying to be uh, ahead of the game in terms of being prepared for, for uh, higher heifer and bread cow prices at some point. I think it's probably a little early to see that, uh, certainly nationwide. Uh, I don't really think that happens in 2022, but it certainly could happen in 2023. Things to watch out for, Dr. Peel, before we let you go. Next Friday, we get the cattle on feed report. Do you believe marketings are going to be able to keep pace with what we need in order to keep these feedlots current? You know, we've done a pretty good job on the marketing side, even though we've had large feedlot inventories, record levels uh, for several months. Um, but I think the marketings have continued to, 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 go, to go pretty well. What we haven't seen yet that, frankly, I've been anticipating for two or three, four months uh, that I do think we will see eventually, and that will be the placement side will begin to drop off as we simply work our way through the available feeder cattle that are out there. We've been kind of pulling cattle ahead for several months. We're going to stop doing that at some point because there just aren't more cattle to do that with, and, and we'll see those placements down. So I'm looking for placements to decrease in this report. Marketing's uh, pretty good on a year-over-year -year basis. All right, we'll be keeping an eye on that report next Friday. In the meantime, Dr. Daryl Peel, Professor of Ag Econ at Oklahoma State University, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk the grain markets with Mr. Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. 
Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Cody Lee, CHS Agronomy Technical Specialist, about the importance of crop protection and nutrient management. Cody, what is the importance of having a crop protection plan? It's critical to have a crop protection plan because of that yield hit that those pests can create. If we don't scout our fields and get appropriate pesticides in the tank, we can start using a lot of yield. Those weeds are out there competing for the same thing that our crops need, such as sunlight, nutrients, and even space. I looked it up and the Weed Science Society of America kind of estimates we lose on average $40 billion on average just to weeds. So just imagine what weeds in conjunction with our insects and disease pressures is doing for us. Cody, in a market where input costs are high, how can growers most effectively manage their crop nutrient strategy? It's really a good thing the commodity prices are high to kind of offset those inputs. However, I think this is a really good scenario with the commodity price the way we are to kind of go and chase and get that high reward scenario. It really all starts with our soils though. Soil testing will really help us gauge, you know, that kind of fertility baseline. And we can use those fertilizer recommendations to kind of gauge what our desired yield goal is gonna be. And then once we do understand our uh, nutritional needs, it becomes more about that fertility placement and trying to make putting our fertilizer in the correct spot where it's as available as possible. Cody, what strategies can help improve that nutrient availability in crops? Fertility placement, timing, and nutrient enhancement products can all be utilized kind of in conjunction to maximize that. Things like nitrogen stabilizers have been around for a very long time, so we can utilize those to help prevent some of that volatility losses, leaching, and denitrification. Then there are also things like chelates, where we can use those to help improve our micronutrient availability and even prevent some of that phosphorus tie-up. And then we can also use in-season supplement smaller quantities of nutrients, you know, through the foliage, such as micronutrient applications. That's Cody Lee, CHS Agronomy Technical Specialist, and thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Corn is native to the American continent and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, as planting wraps up across the country, the grain markets are moving. Saw a big breakdown in the soybean market yesterday, and today we're seeing a little bit of stability in that trade. Corn's down, wheat's down. Joining us to talk through these numbers is Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, what happened in the soybean market yesterday? Well, I think you know we were we were lower across the board, and then the feed greens were able to recover. The soybean market was not. Uh, I think that was a function of the weakness in the products that you've seen. And there's some there's some rumblings that you might see some uh, return to China COVID lockdowns again. But um, you know, I think it's the fact of the matter is is we traded new contract highs not just four days ago, and uh, we saw some profit taking there. So uh, I don't think it's necessarily out of the question to see a, a correction like that. Um, I think the big picture is is, is um, you know. Last week we saw a significant rally in the dollar, and uh, you know, for myself, not just two three weeks ago, it sure seemed like uh, the dollar index had had topped. But um, these inflation numbers came out. We had CPI last week. We had PPI this morning. Uh, maybe the PPI numbers at 10.6 percent were a little bit uh, lighter than than what we expected. Um, or weren't, weren't as bad as the, the the CPI numbers. But with the Fed meeting this week, I think that that kind of uh, uh, reduced the market as far as ideas of interest rate hikes, and now we're, we've gone from expectations of a half point rate, uh, interest rate hike to a three quarters of a point interest rate hike, um, and uh, and that's that's uh, you know counterintuitively uh, has has firmed up the dollar and put the dollar into new highs here. So that's kind of put the grains under pressure. You mentioned the weakness we've seen in the soy products, Garrett. We've got that NOPA crush coming out tomorrow. Do you expect to see a slowdown in the really the torrid pace of crush we've had in this country for the past six months? No, <laughs> I, I actually think the crush, you know, crush margins are still strong, and I think the crush, you know, the expectations uh, are, are for the NOPA crush to be strong. The the interesting thing was is that um, you know we you know you go back to that NAS oil seeds crush at the first of the month, uh, that number was kind of bearish to the products. Uh, we had uh, meal stocks that were bigger than expected. We had oil stocks that were bigger than expected. But that also coincidentally, I mean, I don't think the market necessarily believed those numbers because that's when the product market uh, bottomed, you know, and we've rallied off those numbers ever since. So I do think that the crush numbers are actually going to be, uh, are, are going to be very supportive. Uh, they, they should be towards uh, your record, if not highs. And uh, uh, that I think the trade is going to be looking to see what the product data shows as far as guidance compared to that oil seeds uh, crushed back in uh, back in April, or for the April numbers that came out the first of June. All right, so watching for strong crush numbers tomorrow on the demand side, Garrett. We also had an announcement of additional exports to Mexico this morning. How much corn did they buy? Yeah, they ended up buying. I think it was 138,000 tons here this morning. Uh, no, excuse me, 148,000 tons. Uh, 103,000 was old crop, and 45,000 tons are new crop. Uh, that was the first significant corn sale that we've had uh, in uh, oh, at least a week or so. So it's kind of nice to see the exports business come down. Maybe perhaps uh, a little bit expected. Uh, yeah, it's been two weeks. June 3rd was the last export sale that we had. But uh, kind of be expected that the board is off its uh, off its recent highs here and, and uh, uh, that we're finding some demand at these levels again. I want to circle back to soybeans real quick, Garrett. You mentioned the potential lockdowns that are developing in China, but we've also heard that China is very short bought on their bean needs over this summer. Do you see them coming back to the U.S. market for some exports here of old crop beans? Well, that's the that's the that's the curious thing is they've actually have been fairly active. I mean, I've heard that they've bought up towards the 18 cargos of beans here in the last week. Um, it's not so much I don't think for the summer months. Um, I, they're looking more towards a new crop. In fact, I think because that's kind of what we've been looking for as far as whether it would be a driver for the slide no bean spread. Uh, but I think that they have most of their you know June, July, August. Uh, needs covered. Uh, from what I hear, it's mostly new crop South American and new crop uh, uh, U.S. beans that they're coming in here and, and, and booking. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's about three weeks ago we had a change in policy. Right about when those first lockdowns are being lifted, um, pork prices rallied there, crush margins popped a little bit, and uh, they 
to this point, the, the Chinese buyers have largely been hand-to-mouth as far as their cargoes. And as you mentioned, being short-bought in here, I think that they finally got to the point where they're starting to book forward. And that's, uh, that's a positive sign here, in my opinion. All right, that's positive there. Garrett, I want to turn our focus over to the wheat market. Chicago wheat leading the downward movement in all three wheat classes. Anything special in Chicago today, or was it just that bump up in the good to excellent percentage? You know, we had the bump up, but it's harvest. I mean, harvest advanced 10%. You know, it's we've really, I think, uh, at some point in the near future, we're going to see the sweet market start to feel its oats here a little bit as far as a breakout. We've traded the same, you know, 1050 to 1075 type range for a good week to 10 days. We've got the moving averages at 11. We've got support down to 1020. Uh, I think that we're going to have some sort of breakout one way or another here uh, you know, relatively soon. It just seems like we're coiling here for next position. But it's noticeable, you know, we've had, uh, you know, this – the, the war continues in Ukraine, but we've traded this wheat market essentially in the same 11.25 to the 10.25 range for the last three months. Except for when we do have some issues arise, then we can we can run up and try to test those highs again. But I think that for the most part, we're probably going to uh, stay in this range. Now, the interesting thing from a farmer's perspective is that these wheat spreads are really starting to widen in here because the demand is not focused on the U.S. just yet, at least in the first quarter, second quarter of, of the marketing year. So these spreads are starting to put some carries in. We traded July SEP up to 15.5 cents yet, yesterday. Those are starting to trade some interest uh, payments to commercial. Um, the commercial is going to get paid to store wheat. They're expecting at these prices that the farmer is going to be a heavy seller of wheat off the, off, off the combine. Uh, and the market with the, is going to pay these commercials to, to store this wheat uh, until demand does show its face. Garrett, could we get a news pop on the spring wheat side? Well, and I apologize. I wasn't watching my clock, folks. That was Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. Garrett, we'll get you back on. We'll finish this conversation at some point else. Thanks for joining us today. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. And folks, thanks so much for tuning in to AOA. Today, we'll be talking tomorrow with Michael Dykes, head of the International Dairy Food Association, about the supply chain issues still causing troubles for exports. Tune in tomorrow to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support. Give you tips for living a better life. And share the latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better, better lives, lives together. together.